really had the tools to process it. I just knew that I was different. That's all I knew. I realized that I had to be one way at school and in my neighborhood with the friends that I made there. And then on Sunday, when we went to go visit relatives in Washington Heights or Spanish Harlem, I had to be Spanish. Spanish on Sunday. Hello and welcome to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. I am the producer, creator, and host of New York City's longest-running comedy variety show, No Name and a Bag of Chips. This is our first foray into the world of podcast land. And what we're trying to do here is, is give you a chance to get to meet some of the people who do our shows, some of the amazing folks who have populated our lineups throughout the years, with a specific focus on the unique experience of being an artist in New York City. We thought that might be interesting for y'all to, to hear. The voice you heard up front today was the one and only Michelle Carlo. Michelle is a world-class storyteller and the author of the wonderful memoir, Fish Out of Agua. And we're going to get into it on a bunch of topics, including race and racial identity and racial politics in New York City. And we're going to take a walk down memory lane talking about the legendary New York City art star scene, of which she was a huge part. But we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, a word from our sponsor. Get away to Green Bay. That's Green Bay, Wisconsin, home of the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast, located in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. Your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Steber, will welcome you to any of their five luxury accommodations. Each room has a private bath, and some even have a jacuzzi. Every morning, they will provide you with a fresh, yummy, homemade breakfast, and we will also point out to you fun events and restaurants in the area to make your time there complete. For more information, go to astorhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E dot com. So get away to Green Bay today. Michelle Carlo, I am glad you're here. Thanks for coming out to play with us today. How long have you been in Brooklyn now? 34 years. 34 years. And I, I know That's you... more than half my life, if anyone's counting. Yeah. But you know how, like, people are bisexual and bicoastal? I'm, like, bi-borough. Let me ask you this. When you were younger, did you ever think you were going to live anywhere else? All I know from when I was that young was that I wanted to be an artist. And I wanted to go to the School of Visual Arts. That was, like, the driving... How, how young were you when you first knew that? I started drawing, like, as long as I can remember five years old, whatever. Like when my mom was not around due to being in the hospital, I would draw to like comfort myself. But I always drew. I drew throughout my whole childhood, teenagehood. I wanted to go to school of visual arts. When I was a teenager in the 70s, I drew tattoos for people and tattoos were illegal at that time in New York City. So people used to go to this place called Big Joe's in Mount Vernon. And this is true that so many people went to Big Joe's and got tattoos from things that I drew. Like, I mean, what did I draw? Like the Zofro symbols from Led Zeppelin, like the Yes logo from Yes Songs, the lips from Sticky Fingers, a girl with a top hat and curly hair. So there are native New Yorkers of a certain age walking around with tattoos yes. based on your work. There are people that I knew from the Bronx that either hung out in St. Peter's Park or thereabouts that may still be carrying ink that I put on a piece of tracing paper and they took the Big Joe. So eventually, Big Joe says, bring this girl, that's Shell. Who drew this? Shell. Who drew this? Shell. So he said, bring Shell here. So I went with my friend. I don't want to say her name because I don't know, you know, whatever. who's. But I went with a friend. And Big Joe said, you can get anything you want from this wall. It wasn't the flash wall. It was like the medium wall. And then my friend went in to get hers. And don't forget, this is the late 70s, people. Back in those days, the acceptable tattoos... In the Bronx, I'm not talking about if you were, like, in the city in Manhattan. You could get, like, a mushroom. You could get your astrological sign. You could get, like, a heart or a rose or a butterfly. So my friend is getting a butterfly. First, she was going to get a rose on her stomach. But the person that did it said, are you ever going to have kids? 
And she said, of course I'm going to have kids someday. So the guy said, well, don't get it there because when you get pregnant, it's going to stretch and it ain't going to snap back right and it's going to look ugly. She goes, ow, now. So she turns over on her stomach. I, I got to say, you were concerned about concealing the identity of the person, but you've done No, that could impression. be any number of 16-year-olds. <laughs> trust me, from the Bronx or in Brooklyn as well. That, yeah. So she flops over on her stomach and she's getting a butterfly on her shoulder blade. And I'm, I, I, he, they're not letting me, I have to go back outside. So I'm, I'm at the wall and all of a sudden she goes, ah, ah, ah. and I'm just like, I ain't getting a fucking tattoo. I was like, no, no, thank you. And I still do not have one to this day. I have piercings. I have piercings, right, but I don't right. have, I never got a tattoo. Other than that, in that moment, did you ever seriously consider? Yes. Now that I'm in my dotage, I think it would be nice to have some of my own artwork. And I would do it around, well, I would call it a bicep, but it's not really cut. But like I would have it around there. Because that doesn't like sag. Like you have to think about these things once you pass a certain age. I mean, could you imagine someone that gets like, never mind. I, I know where you're going with that though. Because you see certain people when you're like, oh, in, in a decade or two, this is not going to end well. Right. <laughs> All right. I'm going to say what I was going to say. In the late 90s and early aughts, it was really popular for people to get neck tattoos. And, like, with a yeah, lot of people, my, my. the neck falls apart. So the, all the writing would be, like, all saggy and shit. Oh, ew. No, no. And and then there was that whole uh, trend of people getting um, Asian writing, you yeah. know, that I was supposed that to no say. no one knew what it was. Right. You know, people were like, oh, yeah, that's neat. What does it mean? Love, peace, harmony. Probably said, fuck you, stupid white guy. So you're born in the Heights. How long were you in the Heights? I think they moved to the Bronx right away. I think we lived by Soundview or Tiffany Street or something like that, like by Hunts Point. And then stuff started burning. Even in the 60s, things were burning. My mom was hospitalized for a while, and I went to live with my grandmother for a period of time. And how old were you with that? Uh, between five and six, because I went to PS28 on 155th in Amsterdam. Mom was in the hospital, and then my mom got out of the hospital, and then we moved to the Bronx. And I'm going to say it was 1966. Yeah, and my mom and my brother still live in the same building. And I remember, we were like the... The first Puerto Ricans to ever live in the building. It's a working class neighborhood. No one's dad wore a suit to work. And if they did, they would call him a bad name. And it was very Catholic. It was mostly Italian, Irish, Polish, Greek. When you first moved into the building, how were you received? Well, they used to complain that we played music too loud, which we didn't. Our food stank, like garlic doesn't stink. And the kids ran wild in the hall. My mother never let us play in the hallway. I remember... Very clearly, I'm maybe about eight, my father telling the squat, balding men with skinny cigars clamped in their teeth that hung out in front of the corner, quote-unquote, candy store, that we came from the Italian part of Puerto Rico. And I was, I remember, I was like, what? And I was like, Daddy, why did you say that? And he said, little girl, so people don't burn garbage in front of our door. Like the Italians in Spanish Harlem used to do to my family when I was a kid growing up. No one burned garbage in front of our door. Can you imagine? I remember being told that people would tell my grandmother to go back to her country. But my grandmother would say, Mira, this is my country. You get out. Puerto Ricans are citizens. Mira, yo soy un citizen. For whatever that fucking worth now. So were you personally keenly aware of those attitudes or was that just what your family told you about? Oh, I was always aware of it because I was like Spanish on Sunday. You know, like I was living in the white working class neighborhood and I didn't really look like everybody else, even though I am white presenting. But if you look at me, I have olive skin, I have red hair and freckles, but I have very dark eyes. And if you look at my features, they are Latin or mixed. My mom's dad was half black. Like Tregeno, and that was another whole bone of contention. Oh, God, please. Like, when I was born, they were like, does she have bad hair or good hair? Yeah, like, yeah, I that, almost that died whole... when I was friggin' born, and they were like, does she have bad hair or good hair? Please. The racism that was prevalent in Latinx culture. You, you've got a touch of that from within then, right? Yes, and I have spent all my creative life outing those skeletons in the closet and trying to turn them on their ear because it's horrible. Another practice that was really friggin' disgusting and evil is that if somebody misbehaves, they send them back to the island. 
you know, you're dating somebody that the family doesn't like or you're doing something, whatever. They send you back to the island, living like with a relative. Maybe you don't even know that well. And maybe you grew up speaking English and all of a sudden you're 16 years old and you're living in a really small rural town. It's terrible. I knew people that the darker ones were made to sleep on the friggin' porch. What the fuck? I don't know. I don't get it. it, 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 it oh, it's sickening. There's an incident in your book, by the way, if, if you haven't read it, an amazing memoir and a must for anyone who loves real New York and real New York stories. The book is called Fish Out of Agua. It's a memoir of stories of her time in New York and growing up. My life on neither side of the subway, subway tracks. tracks. Yes, there it's, it's about growing up as a light-skinned, red-headed, freckle-faced Puerto Rican in an Italian-Irish neighborhood in the Bronx in the 1970s. And it's also about a family secret that impacted the relationship between my mother and me for over four decades. The book starts in 1965 and it ends in 2007. I wanted to ask you about an incident in there that I've heard you talk about on stage, whatever, the Puerto Rican Day Parade. How old were you? I was 10. So basically my great-grandmother dies. And when there's the funeral, everybody's in my grandmother's apartment in Washington Heights. You know, they still had a functional dumbwaiter. Kitchen table moved to the living room holding enough food to feed five armies. A hallway that had framed photographs of Martin Luther King Jr., John F. Kennedy, and a blonde, blue-eyed, long-haired Jesus. And I remember going into my grandmother's bedroom, my abuela's bedroom with her, and she shows me a photograph from this really ancient photo album. And like she hands it to me like I'm supposed to know who these people are. And I'm not sure, so I don't say anything, because you know, you're a kid, you don't want to say the wrong thing. Anyway, it ended up, the people in the photograph was my grandmother when she was young and my great-grandmother. And I bugged out because, like, you know, I'm a kid. My, gra- my great-grandmother had been in a nursing home on Randall's Island for years and years. You know, and, you know, when you're a kid, they drag you there. And I just remember this, like, claw, this brown body with, with long gray hair and claws for hands, and she was blind. And my grandmother feeding her chicken soup, sopa de pollo, and combing her hair. And I just remember just, like, drawing in the corner and, like, wishing that we could leave because, you know, the place smelled terrible. She didn't speak really speak English. She wasn't... And then she'd, like, want to hug you, and it was just like, oh, God. You know, because you're a kid. It was just nasty because you're a kid. Yeah, I wish I could hug her now, but, you know... Whatever. There's a certain thing that families do, especially parents, I think, where they're like, you know, there's your aunt so-and-so, go hug them and kiss them. It's like, no! Or worse, when they're no! dead, go, go to the casket and kiss them. Oh, oh God! Yeah, and and exactly. then, then those funerals that they go on for like four days and the body starts to sink, you know, and there's yeah. like wailing and gnashing of teeth and people, ay, Dios mío, ay, Dios, And they throw themselves, oh, God. Oh. Anyway, so... I couldn't believe that the person in the photograph was my great-grandmother because, I mean, she was probably middle-aged, obviously, but, like, jet black hair, brown skin, sharp cheekbones, strong fingers, clear eyes. To me, she was, like, beautiful. I'm like, I don't look like her. I don't look like my grandmother. They're all brown. My mom is very pale because my father's family is very European, and I don't look like anybody. You know, my grandmother's trying to tell me that I'm beautiful as, as, as I am because we're all blah, 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 but, like, I don't speak Spanish well, she don't speak English well, whatever. So we go to the Puerto Rican Day Parade, and I get lost. And I get brought to a band shell, and the people there are very nice to me. They ask me if I'm hungry, and I'm always hungry because I was a chubby kid. They buy me a hot dog and a sundew drink, which is sundew, for those who don't know, is, is a, like, they wave an orange. They wave an orange over a vat of sugar water, and that's sundew. For New Yorkers of a certain age, it was not summer until you were downing those every day. Exactly. So I get this, and I'm going to eat, and I remember there was a good humor truck. And I was like, maybe I could get a strawberry shortcake right. or a toasted almond. So I'm about to, like, stuff this hot dog in my mouth, And the loudspeaker goes, and I swore I heard this. I swore this is what I heard. Well, the family that brought the little white red-headed girl to the parade, please pick her up at the street band show. And I'm just like, what? Who would bring a white kid to this Puerto Rican Day parade? That's ridiculous. And I'm laughing, and I turn around, and I see everybody looking everywhere except at me. And then I realize they're talking about me. So, 
Yeah. And that was the first time that I realized that I I was an outlier. I didn't look like my family. I didn't look like my people. And it was the first time that I really knew that I was a fish out of agua. So at that age, you're already living in... I'm living in the Bronx, Parkchester? Yeah. It's outside Parkchester. When you realize that, how is that impacting you? I mean... How does anything that? impact you when you're a kid? You don't really have the tools to process it. I just knew that I was different. That's all I knew. I realized that I had to be one way at school and in my neighborhood with the friends that I made there. And then on Sunday, when we went to go visit relatives in Washington Heights or Spanish Harlem, I had to be Spanish. Spanish on Sunday. That was the one day of the week that I had to like pretend to speak Spanish and pretend to eat food that I really didn't like and be with people I really didn't understand. Like some family members were not that nice. Some were lovely, some were not that nice. I remember hearing one family member telling my mother, Mira Lucy, you, the, the problem with Michelle is you are bringing up your children to be white. The fuck does that mean? What, what does that mean? You know, I, and what did I know, your mom say to that? Well, I was grown by then. I was basically grown. Oh, okay. And my mother was like, my daughter is going to college in September. My son is graduating high school. Where is your daughter? Where is your son? Mm. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you're coming up there, and did you deal well with the neighborhood? My I neighborhood? Mean, no, I, I, was, I, was, I was bullied horribly. I got stabbed during a race riot. I had my hair set on fire. I got spit on. I got beat. There were people. And this is all race related? Oh, yeah, it's all totally race Because I was stupid. I should have just, like, fronted and tried to pass, right? I even had a family member tell me that the reason why I got beat up all the time was my fault, that if they looked like me, that they would pass. And I told this family member, if I looked like you, I would kill myself. Because my father taught me to always be proud of who I was. And my dad, I mean, my dad was very Italian-looking. And he encountered terrible racism. He was denied work when they found out that he was Puerto Rican. They were like, we don't hire Puerto Ricans. This is in the 50s. He could have had a really good job at a really good place, and they found out he was Puerto Rican, and they withdrew the job offer. I know. It sucks, right? What did right? they think he was? Italian. Uh, last name is Carlo. So somebody came from Italy back in the day. You know, somebody came from Spain back in the day. Someone came from Africa. There were some indentured servants from um, Ireland and Scotland. And, oh, and then you have the indigenous Taino. You can see it in my great-grandmother, because she was born, my great-grandmother was born in the 1800s. All the Tainos are gone, because they all died from smallpox and syphilis and shit. Yeah, yeah. But in my mother's family, they're brown, mostly, and you could totally see the indigenous bone structure and stuff. So, so you put all, right, all that so DNA in a blender, and you pour it out in little cups, and yeah. I got what I got. I remember my high school boyfriend. My high school boyfriend was Irish. And I remember his mother saying, you can't marry her, because you'll have black children. Hey, and I didn't have kids, so I'll, know, I'll never know. Maybe the technology will catch up. Yeah, maybe. So that's how you're doing in the neighborhood, how you're doing it in school. I'm real good at school because I'm smart. I read really well. I'm always in the highest reading group. I draw really well. I'm very articulate. I speak really well. I got skipped. What grades? What years? They tried to skip me twice. I skipped from second to fourth. And then I skipped from 7th to 9th, but then I got left back and I got put in 8th grade where I belonged. Because it was too much. You can't put... A, so basically, like, I'm in ninth grade and I'm, like, t- still 12. Like, barely 13. Right. And there's kids that were having sex. I remember two girls, they were twins. What did you do on your vacation? They said, we got eaten. I was like, I went to Harriman State Park and swam in the pool. And I went home and I said, what does that mean? And then I got Life Boy oh. so put in my mouth. How do you feel about getting skipped? Was that, were you psyched about that? Or were you like, no, no, I don't need to go? I think I was proud. I mean, my family was all proud because that means I was smart. But the second time, no, 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 no. Because they were like, they're smoking, they're drinking, they're setting off firecrackers in the back of the room. I mean, it was terrible. So I started acting out, like cutting school, going to write graffiti and things, and I got put into the BC, the bad class. And then in eighth grade, you take the co-op tests, which were the tests for the specialized high schools. And I wanted to go to art and design. And I missed the test because I had the mumps. Thank you, brother. He had the mumps and I caught them. And I tried to escape down the fire escape in February to go and take this test. And of course I got busted. Right, so I didn't take the test for A and D. I did take the test for Bronx Science. I got in. I could be wrong, but I distinctly remember 
that there were a very small number of kids that made Bronx Science. Yeah. And me and my friend, Darlinda, that was my graffiti partner, we were the two that got in. But my friend had gotten into A&D, so she went there, and I refused to go to Bronx Science. That was like the first time I was really defiant. I was like, I'm not going because I didn't want science. I wanted art. I thought they were all like skinny douchebags. I wanted to hang out with cool artists. How did your family feel about your designs on art? Oh, they hated it because one of my dad's brothers, who was a heroin addict, was very artistic. He was a poet. He was a painter. He lived in the West Village. And they equated being an artist with being a hua, a junkie, a bum, a drunk that doesn't pay the rent. That's what they equated. They, like, I remember being they, told they, constantly, they you... you're not an artist, you're not an artist. And when I finally got into SVA, I paid for it. Number one, they couldn't pay anyway. They, there was no money to pay. There was no generational wealth back then. Yeah. The, what I inherited from my family was debt. I paid for my father's funeral. So I got grants. You know, you got Pell, B-O-G, Pell Grants. I took a loan. But I, I did it. I graduated. That was like, to me, that was like the crowning achievement of my freaking life was the day I graduated from SVA. And then one of my family members took me outside after this beautiful lunch we had at the Lobster Box in City Island and tells me that I ruined my life. Whoa. That I could have been a family member and I could have been anything that I wanted. I could have been a doctor or a lawyer and I had to throw everything away for being an artist. And that family reminded me that they paid for the lunch because my father was a loser and couldn't pay. At that point in your life, that's your shining moment, right? And actually, would you walk me back? You didn't go straight into there from high school, right? No, no. I was almost 20 when I started SVA. I tried for Cooper Union. I didn't understand how to draw empty room. Sorry, provincial brain, you know. I went to New York City Tech on J Street. Now it's New York, yeah, it's New York City Tech College, but then it was New York City Community College because I called the School of Visual Arts finally because I used to see the... The, the to be good is not enough uh, when you yeah, dream of yeah, being great. Exactly, exactly. And then there was one that said Paul Gauguin worked in a bank till he was 35. It's never too late. And meanwhile, I'm like 19 and I think it's too late for me, you know? Yeah. So basically, I call them. I go to a pay phone because I can't do it from my parents' house. And they were like, well, what I suggest you do is you go to another school, community college, major in art, and then try to come in and transfer. So that's what I did. And I got in when I was 20. That's the age where most students are choosing their final major. Forgive me, I know we've talked about this before, but, you know, I I actually, from a very young age, all I wanted to do was draw. I wanted to be a comic strip artist. And when I got out of high school, the only college I wanted to go to was School of Visual Arts. Really? Oh, yeah. The only place I wanted to go was School of Visual Arts. And... My buddy Jerry at Dairy Craft, now the award-winning author of the graphic novel New Kid and its sequel, Class Act. He done good. But here's the thing. Jerry and I were in the same grade in junior high, and we went to different high schools. But we, Did he uh, go to A&D? No, Art no. And he, no, no. He went to Fieldston. So we both come out of, out of high school, and, and I don't know how it is now, but in those days, they had a scholarship exam. And basically the deal is you brought your portfolio, they looked at your portfolio, and then you took this exam. And you had to draw various things and what have you. And the result of this was that they would send you a letter. And it either said you have received a scholarship or you you did not get a scholarship, but you can enroll here where you need to reach out and how much it's going to cost. I got a letter that said, in essence, look, you can apply if you want to, but we suggest you maybe seek out some private instruction elsewhere or look into some other instruction before considering enrolling. It's basically their way of saying, nah, nah, you ain't got it. Oh, um, and it took me a while to get past that because that was the only place I wanted to go. It's awful, isn't it? No, let me ask you this. You you had that desire to draw from an early age. Yes. Did, did you know what you wanted to do with that? When I was very young... I wanted to be a fashion illustrator because that meant I could draw pretty girls wearing pretty clothes and I wanted to be pretty and I wanted to wear pretty clothes like people I saw on TV, none of which looked like me, by the way. When I got to high school, I wanted to be a quote-unquote commercial artist, which is what they said that was a career thing. I have no idea <laughs> you know, I used to hear that and I had never had any idea I what think, the hell that was. I think was. it means art director. It's either an art director or a graphic designer. But in my yearbook, 
you know, it says my name, my astrological sign, whatever, and then it says commercial artist, because that's what I wanted to be. I had no fucking clue what that meant. <laughs> I had no fucking clue. You get to college, you get through college, you did your thing. At SVA, I went from fine art to illustration to cartooning to graphic design. And then I ended up graduating with a media arts that was like advertising art, that was like art direction, copywriting. And, <clears throat> very important, I got the Rhodes Award, the third best portfolio in the department the year I graduated. Not first, not second, I got the bronze medal. Better than that, I got hired right out of school. So in September, I started at a big prestigious ad agency. Mm. I won't say the name, but they were the ad agency of record for Pepsi Cola, the year that Michael Jackson's hair caught oh. fire. Less than six months into that job, I wanted to get out. I made the biggest mistake, and everybody thought that I was set for life. I had a job, you know, I was still living at home, but like uh, making money, like 15 grand a year. This was, it was the 80s, people. And um, I just sabotaged myself. I just basically sabotaged myself. I just wasn't doing well. I treated, I just, ugh. anyway, I hated every aspect of it. I just okay. hated it. And, you know, maybe it's because they didn't have a class that said, transition from the street to working in, in an environment where, where very few people look like you. Like there was one black guy and there was me and everybody else was white. So they got the quarter filled. Yeah, they got, they got the quarter filled. Right? I, don't, I don't remember any Asian people. They were very waspy still in the mid 80s. And I didn't know how to act. I remember once going to a breakfast and like I ate all the croissants. I could never had anything like that before. And people like give me shade. And I know someone said to me, you can't do that. And I didn't get it because, like, my family had been on welfare up until recently. And, like, we were eating, like, hot dogs and, like, the big yeah. block of welfare cheese was so hard you couldn't even cut it with a mallet. Yeah. And the welfare peanut butter that came in a can. So, yeah, so, yeah. I remember the Christmas party was at the old Studio 54. And I had to work late because I was the assistant. Yeah. Art director and my boss was like, you have to finish this. So I get to Studio 54 and everybody's already drunk. So I grab a Heineken because that was classy. And they had all this shredded plastic bag, fake snow. Mm -hmm. And I must have stepped in a wet spot. So I tripped and in order not to fall, I remember the side of my ankle hitting the floor. And I didn't fall because I remember I had the presence of mind to think, you're holding a beer, Michelle. If you fall, they're going to say you were drunk. It didn't matter that I had one sip. I still had the presence of mind to think this. And what happened was my foot was broken. I had broken uh, all the metatarsals in my right foot, except for the big toe. I had to take a car service home. I had to crawl up the stairs. I had to crawl up five flights of stairs and then crawl back down with my mother to go to the emergency room with Jacoby. And then I ended up getting fired. Like right after that? No, not right after that. They, they were smart. They waited until after I was healed so it couldn't be any like discrimination. And then, ugh, it was bad. I think I had mono at that time, too. My resistance was down. It was just bad. And then I moved in with my college boyfriend. That didn't work. Then uh, I, I moved out because I was just like, I, uh, I, I need to get out of here. I just needed to get out. Now, were you working again when you were moving out? Um, I'd just gotten the job, and I could pay the rent. And I remember the rent was $550 a month, 80s. So, and I never looked back. I tried advertising jobs. I tried to be a copywriter. That didn't work. I tried to be a paste-up artist. That didn't work. And I ended up falling into copy editing and proofreading, and that's been my day job for the past 30 years. Did you like it or with it? I'm good at it. I'm decent with spelling. If I can't figure out how to spell something, dictionary, duh. In 93, the place where I was working, it was like a fashion advertising agency, and they did catalogs for high-end things. Like, well, Victoria's Secret's not really high-end, but I thought Victoria's Secret was high-end in 1993. <laughs> and they sent us all to computer school. So we learned, wait for it, Quark Express. Yeah. And I totally remember that at that time, they still had a paste-up a mechanical department, mm -hmm. and they had typesetters that did type manually, and it came out in strips. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then yeah, we would yeah. have to proof the galleys. And they had photostat machines, and they had a machine called the Lucy, which you turn the knob, and then it would enlarge or reduce things. And I totally remember this, that anyone that was in their 20s and 30s, 40s, yeah, let's learn this. People in their 50s, 
Not so much. Like, well, this is what happened. The management said, don't worry, because some people couldn't take the computer school. They couldn't get it or they had a mental block against it, you know? Management was like, oh, don't worry, we'll still have your job, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, within the next year and a half, anyone that did not pass the computer school, they were gone because everything became digitized. I remember that we each had a 20-minute block that we could be, like, check our Yahoo or a Hotmail. I still have my Yahoo address. I don't care. So I was at the beginning of, of uh, graffiti. I was at the beginning of computers. Oh, and when I was 35, I decided to become a performer. If that okay, was another so supplemented what I was going to say. Thing. So you're settling into the day job and you're getting your rent paid now. Yeah. How do we make that, that and I, transition? And, and, and I'm with my, uh, my now ex-husband. I had done a little acting at New York City Tech, and actually, I guess I was good at it because somebody found my father, and they gave him the card, and they said, uh, your daughter, we'd like to represent her. And I asked my father what I should do. I was like 20, but I think they thought I was like 17 because I looked young. My father said, well, that's your decision. And I was the first person in my family on both sides to finish college. And especially because I was such a fuck up in high school, I felt like I had a responsibility to show all my cousins to do it. And I did, and I didn't think about performing. And when I turned 35, so this is gonna sound so woo-woo, but a lot of people where I worked, people were painters, they were poets, they were sometime actors, they were singer-songwriters, they were creative. And this book called The Artist Way was making uh -huh. the rounds. So I did the whole book. There were like 12 people that started, and me and only one other lady finished it. And I was like, I'm going to be a performer. I'm going to be an actor. My ex-husband, he was, sure, go for it, you know, because he wanted to be a fine artist, and this way we weren't competing. And then I started taking classes, and then I started getting little parts in films, and living in oblivion, and to Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar, and HBO Subway Stories. And I did a lot of background work. I was in a lot of episodes of Sex and the City. And I started having this little burgeoning, independent. Sometimes I had a line, it got cut, but I think I got to the point where I just needed one more waiver to join SAG. And then my father died suddenly, and I was in a bad car accident on the way to his funeral. This was in 1997. And I ended up being thrown, and I had injury to my face where I ended up having, I think around 60 stitches in my mouth, holding it together. I, I was like sewn shut, and I ended up having to wear braces for two years, so goodbye acting career. I was gone. I remember I had just gotten a commercial agent because I was even doing print modeling. I was on the Citibank ad that was like on bus shelters and stuff holding a Cinderella, right? Yeah. I remember that. Yep, yep, yep. I think I met you around that time. Yeah. It was out there. Yeah. And they ran that after the shoot, like years after the shoot, which is very strange. But anyway, whatever. The agent was just like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Never called me again. Okay. So um, a friend of mine had told me about a performance space in the Lower East Side called Surf Reality the year before. And I said, well, I did a comedy open mic and it was terrible. They <laughs> what did, comedy open mic did you do? Oh, God, New York Comedy Club. Oh, God. And I didn't know how to work the microphone. And this is the first time I've outed them. Mm. And, and somebody <laughs> yelled from the back, get that dumb cunt off the stage. Jeez. And meanwhile, I'd invited, like, friends so to pay a, a cover show. show. Yeah, it was a bring, of course, yeah. a bring a show. So, you know, if you want to do the math, you could figure out who probably said that to me. And I said, I'm never doing this. I'm humiliation. I'm never doing this again. But my friend said, no, no, this is different. Anything goes. So I went and I basically saw stand up. Some of it was good. Most of it was abysmal. Poetry, spoken word. Some of it was good. Most of it was And what did you do abysmal. when you went to serve Um Well, I watched. You were just taking it in. I was just taking time. it in. Yeah. And I remember I saw a young woman come out naked and sit on the floor. There's a lot of naked performance art in the late 90s people. So this young woman, Vassar graduate, I found out later, expels first a Butterfinger bar fully wrapped and then an onion out of a toto. And there's a young man standing next to her who stood there silent and painted his penis purple. That would be Michael Portnoy of Soy Bomb fame, also a Vassar graduate. I was just like, all right, I'm leaving, fuck this. But then another woman came on stage the late Margaret Trigg, oh. and she did, in her eight minutes, four of the most brilliant, original, comedic monologues. Different genders, different ethnicities, different persuasions, four, completely different in eight minutes. I was like, I want to do that. And then I saw Rob Paravonian play. Oh, well, I, yeah. yeah, I well. saw a Cuckoo Handler in the Elementals and the beginnings of what became Uncle Jimmy's Dirty Basement, James Godwin. So I went, I watched. Finally, my ex-husband goes, you get up and do something or I'm never coming back with you. And I did my audition monologue. It didn't go over well. People liked my outfit, though. 
It was a Betsy Johnson micro mini leopard print baby doll dress. Courtney Love would have wanted this dress. No. And then I just said, I, I'm not going because like I was being an actor. You know what I mean? So I was like, well, these people aren't actors. And then the accident happens and this is the only thing left. So I go back. And I mean, this is... So, so the first time you went there would be before the accident? Yeah, yeah. I, oh. I had gone for almost, I guess, the year prior I had gone. Okay. And then I didn't go for a while. And then there was the accident. And then I went back. I don't know. I was going to do another, like, audition model. Stupid. I don't know. But I go, and they call me, like, first. And I just freak out. And Faceboy looks at me, and he comes down from the tech booth with a stool. And I remember, he looks, he's looking right in my face, and he says, you can do this. With such kindness and compassion. Oh, man, nice. And he puts the stool down. You can do this. I mean, he just thought I had no more stage fright. He had no fucking clue what I had been through in the past yeah. couple of months. I had just gotten my braces tightened. I still had the scar. My father had died. The accident happened in July. This was in late September, only a couple of months. And I wanted to just, like, disappear. I wanted the ground to swallow me. I just wanted to run away. But I knew that if... This is the only thing left for me to be creative. And if I did not do this, then there was nothing left for me. And I might as well just throw myself in front of an F train. Because what was I going to do? Just get a nine-to-five job and just be miserable and die? So I ditched the Craig Lucas monologue and I sat on that stool and I told the story about my father's death and the car accident and about how I had to call 1-800-CABLE with my mouth sewn shut. Hello? 1-800-CABLE? I want my NTA! No, I can't, I can't talk. My mouth is so shut. Can you cut to a next Tuesday? No, ow! Because I popped 10 stitches. My father would be rolling in the grave if he knew I was paying $39.95 to watch MTV and I was 37 years old. I had no idea if it was good. I had no idea if it was right, art. Right. I, just did knew, it. I just did it. And then people came up to me. They were like, Oh, wow. I was in a bad car accident once. It takes you a while before you feel normal again. And, oh, you made me think about my father. I lost my mother three years ago. It, it's going to hurt for a long time. And then someone said to me, hey, that 1-900 cable bit was funny. You want to be in my show next week? And then that was it. I used to think that Surf Reality was a place where only the freaks went. And then I became one of them. And then the rest of my life happened from that moment. I met some of the most brilliantly deranged people on the planet. I've collaborated with them. Many of them I'm still friends with to this day as 25 years ago. Talk um, to me a little bit about that scene. Well, I became Carmen Mofongo. My performance art character, the Lower East Side's one and only Latin lady with stuff on her head. My ex-husband made these fantastic hats. Replicas of Art Deco hotels in Miami, pigs that flew, lit menorahs with Santa Clauses hanging from them, blinking lights. I saw that. So ex-husband is a freaking genius when it came to that. He, it was great. The millinery mastermind. How, how did you land on doing Carmen of a Fungo? I really loved Carmen Miranda. My ex and I had gone to Film Forum to see the documentary Bananas is My Business. And I was really struck by the fact that she was not Brazilian. By birth, her family had emigrated there from Portugal when she was a small kid, maybe eight, nine years old. And her whole costume was her paying homage. Some people would say cultural appropriation, but I think at that time it was homage to the Afro-Indigenous people that wore the headdresses and sold fruits and stuff. And she was like four for ten or something. But anyway, the whole idea that someone who was not born into a culture could become the embodiment of that culture. Mm -hmm. And so beloved, when she died, like, they was, like, rioting oh, yeah. in the streets for the funeral. That just fascinated me. And I just got into my head, well, what if I brought back Carmen Miranda, but for our generation, I'll call her Carmen Mofongo, because she'll be a Puerto Rican from the Bronx, me. And my ex-husband said, that's a terrible idea. Carmen Mofongo was an icon of the Lower East Side oh, yeah. art star scene. But if you want to take that even a step further, how many people from that art star scene can say that they guest hosted the Channel 11 Morning News? Oh, that's right. I did that. I didn't even know yes, that was happening. Live, I turned live, on my TV. What the hell? I want to find the weather. What the? Live with Larry. <laughs> they came to our house like at 4.30 in the morning, and the, my neighbors on both sides, they were like, are you a celebrity? There was this one family that lived on the other side of me. Their daughter wrote a book report on me because she thought I was going to be famous. Oh, my God. I was a burlesque MC. For how did that happen? I, I've got to know how that happened. I don't fucking remember. There, there was a show at Rafifi. There was this Swedish lady... Oh, God, what was her name? She went back to Sweden. She did this, like, variety show. Uh, and maybe she came to surf and saw me. But I remember world-famous Bob. 
and um, Dirty Martini, young yeah. Dirty Martini, young world-famous Bob, uh, young Joe Weldon, Joe Boobs, young Julie Atlas Muse, all the people that were at the forefront of the, the neo-bolesque movements, the turn of the century and the aughts and going into the 2000s. There was this weekly show at, at Rafifi, and then uh, Little Brooklyn and Creamy Stevens took it over, and she went back to Sweden, and uh, Little Brooklyn and Creamy Stevens took over the show at Rafifi, which was uh, on the same block as Venero's, but down the block. I think it's where the Buffalo Exchange is now. And they had a rotating host, so I hosted one show a month. It was me, Goddess Perlman, sometimes Princess Sunshine, sometimes Rosewood, sometimes Sky the Blue Bunny, other people, you know, so we hosted. I just fell into it, and I did for a while. And then I started getting into, um, I wanted to start doing solo work, like theater work. I wanted to do shows. And I started taking a solo performance writing class with uh, Kirsten Ames, who used to be the booker for the Aspen Comedy Festival, which was a big thing back then in the early aughts. She and the guy that used to run Luna Lounge, they did showcases there. So I was taking a class with her and I could do any character, but I couldn't be myself. She suggested that I go to a storytelling thing called The Moth, which was once a month at the New Eurekan Poets Cafe. And I was like, why? And she was like, because they're people, just regular people that go there and they tell five or six minute stories about their life and they're being themselves. And you can't be yourself. Every time you try to be yourself, you're like, like this. I'm, I'm acting like Godzilla. <laughs> like I could do characters, right? But I couldn't be me. I couldn't be Michelle. Yeah. And that was probably why I couldn't really be an actor either because I couldn't be myself. You know what I mean? She said, well, you should go a couple of times and then try it. But go and watch first so you see what it's about. And you know me, I go the first time like, fuck this. I put my name in the hat, I get picked last, and I won! It's not that uncommon, actually. I thought it was at the time, but it's not that uncommon. And I was the little moth it girl for about a year and a half. I was in two Grand Slams. I did a couple of main stage shows. And my Fish Out of Agua came out of the first 20 stories that I told over the first couple of years I started doing the moth. And storytelling was something that I was good at. And I never look back, and that's what I do today. And basically, it's full circle. I do solo performance. I do the occasional acting job. I've told stories across the country, up and down the East Coast, stories from the stage, on television, on NPR. I'm telling you, storytelling is so lucrative, you can make dozens of dollars at it. (laughs) Dozens. It's not like there's like the... Montreal Just for Laughs Festival, where comics will go there and then they'll get an agent or a manager. That doesn't exist for storytelling still at this point. I mean, I don't do the moth anymore. I kind of stopped doing it when my book came out. You know, because you do something for a while and then you do something else. If somebody that I knew asked me to bring Karma Mofungo back to host something or to be in something, I would do it. I mean, I did it in 2018 at Jeff Rose's show. He had a show called I Have a Crazy Idea, and the theme was I Have a Crazy Idea to Wear a Costume. So I brought back Carmen for one night, spanking people on stage. It was great! Oh, my God. And here I am now, 25 years later, dozens of dollars richer, no scar, different partner. I'm still alive. I'm still here. You're still my friend, so life is good. Life is definitely good. So here's my question to you. I... The energy that made that happen, did that belong to a place and time that is gone, or did it still live on and find new forms? It still lives on and finds new forms. All the artistic culture and everything, the whirling creative supernova that's New York City, it just evolves all the time. We're just like one point on the timeline. There was a whole scene in the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s. I mean, going back, like Man Ray in the vaudeville, the 1800s. So we're just like one little mote of dust in this huge cosmic creative dust storm. People bemoan losing what they loved all the time, and you can understand that. I've been to the closings of more venues that I care to admit. Are there any survivors of that great, um, great scene down there? Yeah, Horse Trade. Well, it used to be Horse Trade Theater. Now it's Frigid. Erisiv with the Frigid Theater. Mm-hmm. With the uh, Crane and the Under St. Mark's. And the KGB bar on top. That whole building, 85 East 4th Street, they still operate. And PS122 still operates. Theater for the New City still operates. I, I can't really think of anything else right now. In the East Village, anyway. Yeah. But everybody's memories of what they think was like their time or whatever is predicated on... That night, in that club, when you met that person, and you saw that person, and you heard that song, and you did that thing. And for everybody, that's different. 
So when the place where you did that goes, then you feel the pain. And yeah. the younger people are like, oh, we don't care because we got what when their place where they went right, that right. night and met that person and heard that song at that time. When that place goes, then they'll feel it. So it's just like, you know, New York is always evolving. It's like a shark. If it stops swimming, it dies. Yeah, there's a certain percentage of people who put more value in the places where these things happen and where they were than in the person they were and where they fit into everything. Well, because they were young. You know, a lot of people... Okay, like I always like to say that um, I became a performer when I was 35. That's the age when most sane people give it up. I mean, honestly, there's not a lot of lifers. You know what I mean? A lot of people, they come and they do the open mics and they do whatever and they give it 5, 10, 15, whatever. And they, a lot of people, I know so many people that just move back. They move back to where they came from or, they, you know, they got married and they, had, they got jobs and they had kids and they became whatever. And they, you know, they leading great lives, but they're not like road comics or whatever. Like, I don't know what the equivalent is for a storyteller. Because you can make dozens of dollars doing storytelling. Um, <laughs> and also, a lot of people often bemoan like, oh, it's never going to be as good as it was. But I'm like, what if it's never going to be as good as it's going to be? I always say that. I always say that. Especially now, like, you know, with the COVID, with the Konyo Carajo pandemic. You know what I mean? Like, that put it like a big halt to everybody's life. Yeah. And, um, you know, last week I performed. I did bar shows. I did, did stuff with the theater group. And I felt almost normal. Oh, my God. Like, I went out and I did things. And I rode the subway. And I had to escape from crazy town. Oh, yeah. Subway's not so good these days. Whatever. It'll get better. Everything's a cycle. Yeah, that, that's the thing, and, and uh, a lot of people, and it is not necessarily a judgment on people, but it, it is categorizing, but not everyone's got the heart to hang around and see what the next cycle is going to be. Not everyone's open to being a part of cycles other than the one that they initially are drawn to. There's, there's a whole scene going out in Bushwick. Am I running out there all the time? No, it's <laughs> kind of far. I mean, I do go out there sometimes just to certain things, and like, Actually, before it was Bushwick, it was Williamsburg. And it keeps getting pushed out, like, to Ridgewood. I'm like, what's next? Long Island? Elmont? Rockville Center? (laughs) That's where I draw the line. Not my New York anymore. Aqueduct Raceway? Broad Channel. There we go. Before it, like, sinks into Jamaica Bay. I I, I think that that is an awesome place for it to land, just so that you can talk about the art scene in Broad Channel. But, you know, what I keep hoping for is is that that we'll get one up in the heights and inward. I look at what we do at Word Up in normal non-pandemic times. I keep hoping that there'll be a spark of getting more of that going on uptown while the people who are artists can still live in that area. Yeah. I don't even remember how we met. Was it at Surf? Was it at Dick Danger? We met at our friend Emmy Gay's wedding. Oh, Emmy Gay, I remember Emmy Gay. Yes. Emmy Gay is a wonderful comic. And, yep, at and the Quaker wedding. Art, yeah. I was with I, the ex. And I did not even know you were with the ex at that point. I did not know you did had Did you try to hit on me? With. I did not. I no, was, I don't think you did. I was immensely depressed that day. I was really, really late. I left late, and the train I was on ran over somebody. And I stepped out the subway and had to walk instead of taking the second train that I needed to. And it was monsooning, and my umbrella gave out. That's and I right, was, it was raining. I was drenched and depressed as fuck when I got there. So I met you that day, but I don't think we spoke. But I then met you at a play reading for something she had written. I I did a bunch of her shows back then. I was in several of of her productions. Right. This was just a reading of a play that was going to be produced. I did introduce myself there because I recognized you, and I think you were the only person I knew there. And we exchanged information. Our third meeting was that we were both cast in a, a Chekhov play. Oh, that was like in 2003 or four. Michael at, Dale yeah. directed it. And at that point, I invited you to come check out No Name. You initially did a couple of appearances at Carmen Mafungo. In the early 2000s, before then, the play. Yeah. I definitely remember going to that 8th Avenue <laughs> parking lot building, Common Basis Theater, like 2001, two. I think the play was in 2004 or five. But anyway... Obviously, the book is amazing, and and you've done a number of stage shows, some based on the book and some beyond that. What you working on now? What's next? Uh, I have a new solo show, well, new-ish. I premiered it at Frigid's Gotham Storytelling Festival last November called What a Difference a Year Makes. It's stories 
that happened to me during the Konyo Carajo pandemic. Those stories are interspersed with other times that my life got derailed. The core thing there is that everything is temporary. Shit happens. Everything is temporary. It's never going to be as good as it was, and it's never going to be as good as it's going to be. Do you have any desire to write another book? Sometimes. I have no clue. No, actually, I do have a clue. I think it would be interesting to do Latinx versions of fairy tales. You, you've played with that before, right? Yeah, yeah. because yeah. um, the soul show adaptation of Fish Out of Agua, which I did pre-pandemic at the Gotham Storytelling Festival, to great acclaim. Roger Clark of New York One interviewed me in Errors. It was great. Sold out. I was going to take the show and do it at various places, and then March 2020 happened, and it all went to shit! Um, that's a wrap. Yeah, that's a wrap. Uh, derailed again. So, um, what a difference a year makes. I'm, I've been doing a lot of storytelling. I'm all, I also am with this theater group called Zetchi. We do different shows. I uh, did a couple of films last summer, one called 45 Minutes with Edith Wharton, and then I did another film called Evil Sublet. E-vil, like each village, sublet. I'm still doing it. You know, during the Konya Carajo pandemic, I did a bunch of online shows, which was really cool because I got to perform in places I not, may not necessarily be able to go to, like Minneapolis. I did a bunch of podcasts. I did, I'm on the Risk podcast, the Story Collider. I'm going to be on another uh, storytelling podcast called The Volume Knob. That episode will drop next month. I just keep on keeping on. That's basically it. And we would be remiss if we did not mention something that we worked on together. Once Word Up Bookshop in beautiful Washington Heights, they are up and running, but they are not having in-store events right now. But when they do, we intend to return to our weekly no-name at Word Up shows, and uh, which features a monthly... Super Story Party! Head curated and co-hosted by... Me! Michelle oh. Carlock. Oh. Yeah, exactly. I'm a native New Yorker. Ha! Huh. I do want to take the moment to thank you for all the amazing storytellers that, that you've brought to Washington Heights. It really excites me to be able to bring some of the, the best in the cities, really the best in the country, to my home neighborhood or whatever. And, and you make that happen. You always make it fun. So uh, you made this fun. Can I do an addendum? I was so happy to do the No Name at Word Up storytelling party shows because I wanted to bring the storytelling to Washington Heights and Inwood because most of the storytelling was in, like, downtown, you know what I mean? And, and I wanted to also bring storytelling to an audience that maybe wouldn't go to a moth, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, neighborhoods of color are underserved in many different ways, and this was just, I guess, a good way to... Um, give back or just give or just be just be just exist i would love when random humans just came in off the street sometimes they would stay sometimes they would just grab snacks and run out the door yeah sometimes they just came in to use the restroom people just stayed didn't leave in connection with that we now have as a pa on on this series a young man stanley Ressio, who started coming into the shop as it's like a seventh grader we weren't comfortable with him being in the place but he came his and he teacher stayed. brought them and also, since I'm mentioning staff, I want to give a shout-out to our peerless producer, the one and only Gary Hardcastle. Woo, uh, Gary! Thanks for being here. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for having me. And that was the force of nature known as Michelle Carlo. Man, I always love talking with her. It's always fun, and I'm always a little tired when we're done. You can check her out. She performed at fine quality storytelling shows throughout the city and actually even nationally. Check her out live if you can. Check out her book, the wonderful memoir, Fish Out of Agua. Thanks so much to Michelle for being here. I'd also like to thank my producer, Gary Hardcastle, and our production assistant, Stanley Ressio. Also, I'd like to note that the music for this show, the theme music, was created by King of the Hill himself, Courtney Hill. So thank you all for choosing to spend some time with us. Until we meet again in person or virtually, take good care of yourselves. I love you all.
All right. Uh, again, I thank you if you've stuck around. It's bonus content time. Uh, we had a great conversation with Michelle Carlo, and now we got some bonus content. Uh, first off, uh, we have a... <laughs> We would like to call one one of those uh, war stories. Actually, I guess it isn't so much of a war story; it's a New York story. Uh, for those of you familiar with Michelle Carlo and her work, uh, you may know that when she does book signings, um, she always promises that uh, if you buy the book while she's there, she will sign it for you uh, using authentic New York style graffiti, uh, and she always emphasizes. I'm saying it will be authentic. I'm not saying it will be good. Well, uh, in Michelle Carlo's past, uh, she had some experiences with being out there with the subways and doing graffiti. Uh, so we got a little story about that that she shares. Uh, and after that, uh, we have a song from our, our good friend Miles Blue Spruce. Again, if you if you all have followed No Name, you know that not only has Miles Blue Spruce been part of the Summer Replacements, our house band. Uh, but for many years, he was our uh, in-residence uh, musical artist for our shows at Word Up Community Bookshop. Uh, and what we've done is he's, he's got a band named Blue Spruce. And uh, we're sharing a song uh, from his album, from the band's album, The Poison in the Ice. And uh, the song itself is called The Last Train Ride, which seems appropriate since we're talking about subway graffiti. Uh, so sit back, relax, enjoy these. But first, I want you to know that our bonus content is sponsored by Word Up Community Bookshop in Washington Heights. Word Up Community Bookshop, located at 2113 Amsterdam Avenue. That's the corner of 165th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. This is a wonderful place. It's a community-based place, and it is the bookshop with a little something extra. Uh, they have a great selection of new and used books, uh, not only in English, but in Spanish and many other languages as well. They also have merchandise from notebooks to T-shirts to tote bags to games, uh, all sorts of cool stuff there. It is largely volunteer staffed, and uh, they also have programs for young people, uh, there are artist events, uh, author events, there are writing workshops, so please check them out. Lots of good stuff there. They also have an online bookshop. Do check them up, out at wordupbooks.com and uh, support independent bookshops. That's always a good thing. So whenever you're in Washington Heights, uptown New York City, be sure to drop into Word Up Community Bookshop. I, I think if I know your chronology more or less uh, right, we have missed your career as a graffiti artist. Can you fill that no, in? No, ain't that much to tell. I just basically was in the place at the time that where it was happening. My friend uh, Dorinda, she was actually up. She was known. She used to write Grape 897. I used to write Shell 194 because Shell was my, my teenage nickname. And we used to hang out at 149th Street in Grand Concourse. We'd cut out of school. And, and how we old hang are you? Out, uh, like 12, 13. So this like shits after you got skipped the second time? Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is the early 70s. They were like all the biggies of graffiti, like uh, Super Cool and Stay High and Ray B and Tracy 168. And, uh, so you were rubbing elbows with the great. Well, I was like... With the notorious. You did. We're just like, look at me and like, you know. Right. Oh, my little, little kid, little redheaded kid. Well, she's Puerto Rican. Okay. <laughs> 149th Street was really great because it was just like this kind of clubhouse mm -hmm. and like people would like tag in each other's books. Like my friend, Darlinda, if she still has that tag book, it'd probably work worth mad money because anyone who was, anyone, Zephyr, I mean, anyone that was like mad famous from the early 70s was tagged in her book. And then, you know, to be famous, you needed to do a top to bottom. You covered an entire train car from the windows, you know, down to the you doors. You bombed the whole thing. You had bombed the whole thing. And I was like a toy because, like, I just, like, yeah, tag, yeah, tag, you know, like, tag the inside of trains, maybe the outside. But I never had done a top to bottom. And I remember one day Grape had this beautiful top to bottom. And everybody's like, whoa. And then she got into, like, war. Writers are respected. Uh -huh. And I was just like, I never belong to anything because I'm always the outlier, right? Mm -hmm. So I figured I have, I have to do a top to bottom. 
So there were some writers that I knew from my neighborhood. They didn't have like real fame, but they had like number six train fame. And, and, right, right, local. Yeah, yeah, local. It was uh, Mad Mark and Rod 15 and Gabe. I don't, I don't remember what Gabe's uh, number was. But um, they said, well, can you look out for us? We're going to hit the layups. The layups is the middle track where they stored the trains. You know, they were going to do top to bottoms, whatever. They were going to do masterpieces, do the pieces. Right. And they wanted me to look out for them. So I got into my head, well, they could do their pieces and then they could look out for me while I do mine. And in those days, most people went to Pearl Paint on Canal Street mm-hmm. to rack, yeah. rack up, steal the paint. But like, I was too chicken to go all the way to Canal Street by myself. So I went to this hardware store by Bureau Avenue or something and I uh. racked up some silver, red, white and black. I got one can of each. I hid them. I went and I, I looked out for them when they did their pieces. And then when they came back, I was like, hey, now you can look out for me. I'm going to do mine. And they were like, well, Shell, we would have hit you up, but we, we used all our paint. We'll take your paint and we'll hit you up. And I'm like, no, I need to do my own. And they're like, all right. They're like, be careful. And like, so I'm walking on the, on the fucking like the, the tracks. I'm walking on the tracks. And then Gabe goes, Shell, be careful. Some of the wood is broke. And then, you know, you also had to be careful. You don't step on the third rail. Gabe was kind of jumpy. So he yells, train! And I'd like just like run in between cars. And like the wood is like, oh my, I don't know. I don't know how I lived. But I did it. I did the piece. I couldn't do top to bottom. I was like, I was was, like barely five foot tall. So anyway, I do it. We're at 149th Street. I think I never was going to see it. But I didn't realize that train cars switched. Like a six train could be on the two line or the five line right, or the four right, line. Right. But I remember we were at we were at 149th and people are laughing and they go, look at that toy. Guess what? It was oh, no. me. And my friend, my beautiful friend, who I'm still friendly with now, she just says, let's go. And we hit up the insides of the six train. And she says, fuck them. It never comes out good the first time. You just got to keep trying.
So, uh, again, thank you guys if, if, if you're still hanging out. Uh, had a great conversation with Michelle Carlo. Got a little bonus insight of what it was like to be a graffiti artist at a certain time in New York. Um, and you got a taste of some music from the band Blue Spruce, uh, fronted by our good friend Miles Blue Spruce. Again, the song you heard is called The Last Train Ride, and it's from the album The Poison in the Ice. Look online, iTunes, wherever you get your music. It's out there, man. Check it out. Uh, Good stuff. So thank you all for hanging out. We hope you'll continue to check out future episodes of the No Name NYC podcast. Remember that, again, think of it as four words, even though we're making NYC a word. Uh, But uh, No Name NYC podcast. Please, if you like what you heard, let people know. Post about it. Comment on it. Uh... Uh, get the word out. We're talking about the experience of being an artist in New York City, and we want you to share the ride. Thanks for being here. My name is Eric Vetter. Take care. <laughs>